in the spirit of reconciliation. Herbert Smith Freehills acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Our position is clear. We think there should be not just the national scheme, there should be a scheme in, in New South Wales, Queensland, WA, all the states that have a, uh, a class actions regime should be doing this. Um, You've got to look a quiet confidence about you there, Jacobs. I think you might know something I don't. No, no, I don't know. <laughs> I, I seriously do not know anything you don't. Welcome to On Just Terms. In this series, we look at the changing nature of corporate risk in Australia by speaking to the people at the front line of Australian litigation who will shape the future of the Australian legal risk landscape. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Jacob Varghese, the CEO of Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Jacob is deeply experienced in class action litigation with experience in shareholder, product safety and migration matters. He is a passionate advocate for access to justice and prior to becoming CEO was the principal overseeing Morris Blackburn's social justice practice. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of On Just Terms. We're really grateful for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Well, it's our pleasure. Uh, in our podcast series, we've focused a lot on the future of corporate risk in Australia, litigious regulatory, but of course, in the context of class actions, which is also a topic we've returned to from time to time, they have a much broader role. And I was interested in starting a discussion with you about how you see class actions being deployed for broader social justice type causes, cases that perhaps are, don't get the prominence that uh, they do in the corporate sphere, but are nonetheless extremely important to ensure access to justice. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think, um, you know, my starting point there is that all class actions are about access to justice ultimately, right? They're about the, the, the approaches to create a commercial model, an economic model in which you can aggregate small claims uh, that wouldn't be worth pursuing on their own or would be uneconomical to pursue on their own and bringing them together so that you might have a real chance of getting uh, a, a just outcome and, and using the legal process, whether it results in the outcome you want or not a just outcome. Uh, and so access to justice is sort of at the heart of all of the class actions. So it's, it's sometimes a bit of a fine line, what's a social justice class action and what's something else, you know, what's a, what's a run of the mill class action. Um, and, and people might disagree on, on what those things are. Uh, I think of the case that you and I worked on together as a social justice case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that, that's a good good way of thinking about it. I mean, in a broad sense, the, the overall goal is to allow people to get into court. And I'm just wondering about those claims that perhaps are pursuing what I'll call sort of the non-corporate misconduct in, in a sense. So wrongful deaths in custody or wrongful detention, workplace environment issues. Absolutely. So, so, so clearly there's some sort of continuum of ones where, where you're talking about a very vulnerable community who had just no chance of justice uh, without the class actions regime. And a great example is the case we've recently run and settled uh, for uh, young kids who were treated badly in Northern Territory youth detention, uh, in which we've secured a settlement for them. Uh, and hopefully, you know, that's that sort of life-changing uh, compensation for those people. Uh, and at the moment, we're engaged in a, a really interesting exercise 
of uh, where the court has, uh, through the settlement administration scheme, required us to provide financial counselling and assistance to these kids so that they use the money in ways that do change their lives. Uh, and uh, so it's a great example of, of how the system has allowed uh, a remedy for people in, in circumstances where without, without class actions, it just would have been inconceivable. That, that uh, is a great iconic example in a sense of where class actions are doing their best work. That's right. You run a very large firm with the ability, I think, to, to reach out beyond what I might call the traditional and perhaps even more remunerative class actions to focus on areas that are more diversified. Yeah. Um, it's probably accurate to say that our class action market is still a little bit focused on the more predictable areas of corporate misconduct, although it's true that over the last few years, you know, shareholder class actions as a proportion of the total regime are a little less now. Um, is there more that, not every firm will have that ability, uh, is there more that the Australian legal system can be doing to ensure there's funding for the cases that perhaps aren't getting the attention they deserve? When, as I say that, I think about the the idea of a fighting fund that the ALRC originally floated, but obviously didn't get political traction. What, what else can be done or should be done or how do we redress that balance? I think, um, I think the Commonwealth provides public interest funding for uh, cases that are difficult, but that have some sort of public interest in, in, involved in them. It'd be great to see that grow uh, and, uh, and support class actions. It has actually, uh, we, we have accessed that funding before for important cases, uh, and uh, I think that's available. I think the way we approach uh, some of these cases, like the, the Northern Territory Youth Justice case, is we, we considered a social justice case. We didn't determine whether or not to do it on the basis of whether or not it would be remunerative on a commercial basis. Uh, and, um, and it was an opportunity for our lawyers to give back and do something in the way that other firms would do pro bono work. Uh, in the end, uh, because we were successful and we got costs, there was a degree of remuneration in it. But, um, but you know, we would have been prepared to uh, to lose in a sense, uh, and our normal risk assessment was applied differently. Uh, and we've done that in many other cases as well. So, in answer to your question, I think there's a bit that the profession can do, uh, and there's a bit that uh, we could look for public policy solutions like fighting funds, like the Attorney General's uh, special purpose funding, public interest funding. Uh, and um, but but from the profession's perspective, being prepared to um, chance our arm on difficult cases that wouldn't necessarily stack up commercially is just part of the obligations of the profession in the way that pro bono has always been a part of the the obligations of the profession. Um, so we see it as you know part of giving back. Yeah, that makes that makes sense and. Uh, and, and, uh, and it's admirable that uh, the size of your firm allows that to be done. And I suppose as well, you would look to partner with some of the third party litigation funders who are on the larger side and who might have the ability to also support those claims. So exa Exactly. So that, that case for the seaweed farmers was supported by a litigation funder, or is, I should say, supported by a litigation funder. Uh, and, um, you know, I'd give, I'd give a lot of credit to that funder for being prepared to take a chance on what it seems, it's not, it's not every day something comes across your desk saying, will you fund Indonesian seaweed farmers? No, no. Uh, uh, very hard to organise, very hard to get funding agreements from. Um, so it was very admirable of them. That was Harbour in, uh, in the UK to, to put their neck out uh, uh, on that case. Um, so I think there's a role for funders in this as well. Um, but, but I do think it, it just ultimately comes back to that sense of, of, um, 
of uh, reinvesting back in. to yeah. the community. I follow. Um, and and the, I should say another another creative solution in some of these public interest cases is to get protective cost orders. Uh, and that's something we've used in an occasion where we're doing public interest litigation that isn't commercial. We can sometimes negotiate with the other side to have an agreement to limit the adverse cost exposure. That makes a big difference too. And so that's the other side also, you know, contributing to resolving the issue of public interest. And that might be an area where I know it would be sometimes hard to define legislatively where to draw the line, but that might be an area where legislation would assist to sort of enshrine that cost protection for certain kinds of cases. It might. I'm not convinced it's necessary because courts have the discretion as well. Uh, and uh, uh, I know, I think Omni Bridgeway, in fact, uh, got a protective cost order in a case early on and we've done it. Yep. Um, I think um, I think at the moment I'm comfortable that sensible parties talking to each other can reach agreement and if not, sensible judges can use their discretion in that regard. But the idea of limiting the adverse cost exposure because the case is one of public interest that ought to be heard, uh, I think it is an important one and, uh, and exists already um, in the law. And let me pivot slightly from the, the broader social goals of, of class actions to talk a little bit about their interaction with ostensibly the public goals that are pursued by regulators. So maybe bringing it back to the context of corporate misconduct for the moment. Um, talk a little bit about the current environment where we've certainly seen no uh, relaxation in the, in the fairly steady trajectory of, of class action litigation over corporate malfeasance. Uh, it's a popular area for class action firms and, and, and promoters to, to compete for the ability to sue in that space. But equally, particularly post-Royal Commission, we're seeing active regulators as well. ASIC is more litigious perhaps than it once was, Austrac, APRA. I think there's, there's a heightened sense that the regulatory environment's also uh, more litigious than it once was. And I'm wondering how you see the impact on class action litigation at space from the growth in a more active regulator or is there more scope for those two interests to cooperate or talk about what yeah. you see as the landscape there. Yeah, I'm not convinced there is a growth in litigation when you look at the hard numbers uh, that is happening from the regulators. Uh, if you look at what, I don't, I don't know whether there's some other source of data, but the annual reports show it jumps around from year to year in the number of matters that ASIC will bring or the ACCC will bring. Um, I don't see any detectable sort of trend, but clearly they, they're a user of the court system to do their job. Um, um, you would have a better sense on the ground, I think, of, of, uh, of what that feels like from um, companies' perspective. But, the, uh, but certainly I, th I see the regulators and class actions working as sort of parallel approaches to similar problems. Uh, so in, in regulatory theory, we commonly have this concept of a regulatory pyramid in which, uh, you know, at the top end of the period, pyramid, you have enforcement. Um, and, then, and then deeper down, you might have government kind of uh, follow up. So, sorry, at the top of the pyramid, you have prevention. Um, and then you have enforcement by the government, and then you might have private remedies. So you see that in, in workplace safety. And we'll have uh, the workplace safety inspectors are going around hoping, hopefully making sure accidents don't happen in the first place. Uh, where the most serious incidents happen, 
the, the regulator will take action. We now have criminal manslaughter and other things. Uh, sorry, criminal manslaughter, industrial manslaughter and, uh, and other things that are all part of that layer of the pyramid. And then we have a very active um, private enforcement space in which uh, the, the people who have actually been affected by the, the workplace injury have an opportunity to sue. Uh, and, and that's worked through the private sector. Um, the benefit of a pyramid approach like that is the government's money goes a lot further, right? Because you're investing in the, the, the inspectorate, the enforcement agency, and then the courts, and you're then mobilising private sector resources to deal with the private consequences of the wrongdoing. So I see class actions working very similarly. It's, a, it, it's sort of different because the volumes are very different to workplace safety issues. Um, but, but similarly, ASIC... Uh, is sort of hopefully doing a lot of prevention work. Uh, the ASX does a lot of prevention work through training and other things. Uh, ASIC is then doing enforcement work or the ACCC doing enforcement work. Uh, and then class actions are at the bottom of the pyramid, mobilising private sector resources to, to you know, bring back uh, the, the economic um, consequences to the wrongdoer and, and, and hopefully to the benefit of the victims. Um, so I see them working very much as parallel parts of a whole framework of ensuring that we get the corporate behaviour we want. Uh, I follow. And, and just developing on that point about, and my words, not yours, but paraphrasing, sort of the class action layer of the pyramid sort of supplementing almost like a private attorney general. It's sort of seeking to enforce similar rights, but different consequences. Um, I, this might be an overgeneralised question, but I've often wondered whether uh, a class action plaintiff's firm um, co considers uh, relevant to its decision whether to pursue proceedings, whether there's an, a, a, a regulatory investigation on foot irrespective of the outcome. Is it, is it a relevant factor? Is it irrelevant? Is it something that's maybe forensically relevant because there might be some documentation that can be deployed in the class action or, or is that just overthinking the, the interface between those two? No, I, I think it's relevant. It's certainly relevant forensically. Um, because uh, regulatory action might have exposed the wrongdoing. So it's, it's a lot easier to make a, a judgment about whether or not there are compensable rights there. Um, but also, uh, to the extent that regulators are in a position to go and get compensation for clients, which they sometimes can do, uh, and, and ASIC, I think, in recent times, especially after the Royal Commission, has been very effective at, um, at compensating people for some of the things that came out of the Royal Commission, uh, then, then that's mitigating people's losses, which means there's no, um, there's no need for a class action. So they sort of work in both directions there. So th there's no question when assessing a class action, uh, what the regulator is doing is very relevant to considering uh, what compensable rights there might be for people. Uh, it might, and as I say, it might go in either direction, depending on the way the regulator is operating. No, that's, that's interesting and, and that, that resonates. I'd like to get a little bit more specific on one recent development in the legislation that impacts class actions, and that's the, the emergence in Victoria, at least, of an embracing contingency fees, group costs orders, and maybe get your take on where that development might, might leave us in, say, five years. It's early, I know. And you and I probably don't see eye to eye necessarily on the on the philosophy of, of contingency fees, but we both know the arguments. Yeah. Um, one of them was put forward on an access to justice ground, and I, t I totally understand that in, in conceptually 
the early experience has been most of those group cost orders have been sought in the shareholder class action space. That's the first chapter. It doesn't mean that that's where we'll land. Um, two, two questions, really. One, three. One, where does this take us in the next few years? Will we see the development of that jurisdiction? Will it actually spread out so that that kind of funding mechanism, if I can call it that, is used for other cases? To um, do you see a potential for a national regime? I mean, this is crystal ball stuff, but we've got a new attorney general who will look at that. And I forgot the third, but I'll come back to it after, <laughs> after you get through the first two. <laughs> can I answer you two, and then can I make another point as well? The um, the in relation to other cases, you mean other class action species? I do. Yeah, I'm thinking more about you know if it's going to open up those pathways, maybe they need to be in pathways that aren't already fit fairly heavily pursued. Yeah, I think um, I think almost certainly they will. I think. Um, I do think that uh, that uh, contingency fees are uh, supportive of access to justice uh, because they uh, they reduce the overall cost to serve the clients because you're not paying a lawyer as well as the financier. The lawyer and the financier are brought together in a sense, and uh, the law firm is betting on its own its own people rather than a financier betting on the the law firm. So there's a degree less risk there that is being incorporated into lower prices. So it's reducing the cost to serve, which is it's beneficial for the clients in a given class action because they're paying less and getting more uh, uh, respectively or re relatively, I should say. Um, and then, um, uh, but also it's extending access to justice because cases that previously might not have been commercial will become commercial. Now, let's see how that goes. Uh, we're still in the very early days of the group cost order regime in Victoria. The court has been coming to terms with developing some jurisprudence around the considerations that should be had in making a group cost order. I think that's developing in, in the grandest traditions of the common law. That's developing through iteration uh, and um, and a very good dialogue, I think, between um, practitioners and judges, effectively, uh, uh, through the procedure of uh, of applying for a group cost order. So once that's settled down a bit, it, it's it seems to me not unexpected that the kinds of cases that are the experimental first ones are uh, in in more traditional areas. Um, but once that case law has settled down and we're able to make assessments of whether we're likely to get a group cost order, uh, what the percentage is likely to be, then, then you know, I think we'll see uh, flowering of, um, of the use of the group cost order in, in many different other areas. I've got no doubt about that. Do, do you um, think, it could, think it could dislocate the, the third party funding market a little or will it grow organically so that they're used together? I think what we're seeing through the jurisprudence that's developing in Victoria is through the, through the actual examples is a lot of the time the funder is working with a lawyer, but the lawyer is now the first party at risk. Uh, I don't think that's inappropriate. That seems pretty sensible. So uh, I think funders and lawyers are working together on devising really great commercial outcomes for the clients ultimately. And, and, now, and, and what's really happening is centering the client's perspective in these discussions. Um, and that's all for the better. Uh, and, and a competitive environment a very mature market in which there's lots of players, both amongst the lawyers and amongst the litigation funders, is doing what markets do. It's providing a transparent system of pricing for, uh, for in which judges are making sensible determinations where there's competition, in which clients are in a better position to compare apples and apples. 
uh, and and all of those things that we said would happen with contingency fees, I think we're seeing in Victoria as that develops. So uh, it's it's very early days. Let's see how it develops. Um, but but I remain very confident it's going to have been a, a, a very good reform for clients and future clients. Um, the second question about national uh, contingency fees. The, the Law Reform Commission that looked at this did recommend that there is a, a, a look at uh, national contingency yeah. fees. I think it's timely. The government has said they're going to respond to the ALRC uh, recommendations um, towards, I think I think the Attorney General said towards the end of the year, maybe that, it'll be next that's year. That's the impression I got. Um, so I think it's going to be a great conversation once the government's produced a response there. Um, you and I were both in the audience when we, we saw the Attorney General uh, being very non-committal on the subject. Um, but, uh, but our position is clear. We think there should be not just the national scheme, there should be a scheme in, in New South Wales, Queensland, WA, all the states that have a, uh, a class actions regime should be doing this. Um, You've got to look a quiet confidence about you there, Jacob, so I think you might know something I don't. No, no, I don't know. I, I seriously do not know anything you don't. Um, but is it? But it's a little bit, un it, it, putting to one side anyone's views on contingency fees, it is a bit unusual when the, the we've got essentially a national class action procedure, but but differences in I think, the way. I think that's right. We should be harmonising. Because um, in the absence of harmonising, what worries me is the class actions that end up in the federal court will be the ones, if there is overlapping jurisdiction with Victoria, they'll be the ones where the, the lawyer and funder are expecting to take a disproportionate amount of the settlement. If you, if you had an attractive proportion that you were going to be taking, why not bring it in Victoria? Uh, if you bring it in, 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 in the federal court, if there is shared jurisdiction, I worry the federal court will become the reservoir of very expensive non-commercial cases. I see, yeah. uh, so there is definitely an argument for harmonisation. The additional point that I wanted to make is I'm for contingency fees, not just in class actions, but for the entire profession. Um, because I think uh, one of the problems we need to face up to as a profession, uh, and, and I'm now wearing a hat as the CEO of a law firm that does multiple services, is that uh, we don't have very transparent pricing for clients uh, and we don't have in, our, in, in the economics of the market many incentives to improve productivity and efficiency and provide better client service as a result. Uh, and I think that's because we've always charged and we're only required by law to charge on the basis of the inputs we put in and not the value we create. Uh, and so uh, the incentives to do more work Certainly the incentives to find ways to do less work uh, are not there. Uh, and um, as a result, lawyers' fees have just gotten more and more expensive by comparison to average weekly earnings. And access to justice is arguably worse uh, in, um, in uh, 2022 than it might have been in 1962. Uh, and, um, and if I was a public policymaker, um, and I was interested in creating productivity across the Australian economy, I'd be looking at professional services and legal services in particular and saying, you know, how do we get this sector to invest more in productivity? And, and the obvious economic answer is give them a share of the output, the, the value that they create, and, and you'll see them create more value uh, for their clients. Um, Will you extend that to defendants' lawyers as well? I, I would. I would. Uh, I, I would. I would think. I haven't quite yeah, worked that one out yet myself. I, I, you, 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 I, I don't see why defendant lawyers can't have performance-based 
um, bonuses, for example, for bringing in a case early, or that, that, that would create good incentives. Do you think there could be, to, to your broader point about a broader uh, adoption of contingency fees across other subject matters of the law, do you think there could be the political will for that in, in, the, in the next, during the, this government's tenure, or is it a longer term project? It, it's, not a, it's not a federal government issue, ultimately. It's a state government issue. Um, we, have a, we have four states now signed up to the Legal Profession Act, and that's, that's really, the Legal Profession Act is where the kind of harm is being done because the rule in the Legal Profession Act is that we're only allowed to charge proportionate to the work we did, um, not proportionate to the value we created. Um, and uh, I think there's no reason defendant law firms shouldn't be allowed to charge on the basis of the value they're creating. You might need to think of creative ways to measure that value, um, but certainly on transactional work and other things, why isn't that the basis? All of what we know from microeconomics is uh, that, uh, that we should be uh, remunerating producers on the basis of the value they create, not on the inputs of production. Um, so, so I'm a true believer. I, I sense that. I'm also <laughs> sensing a political platform. Someone might be voting for you one day. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I, um, I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a true believer. So it's, it, all the arguments about why group cost orders are great for class actions, I, I totally believe in and um, support, but I think it, it goes much broader than class actions. I'd like to see a conversation for the whole profession about this. Because we do have to admit, as a profession, we haven't been great for access to justice. We, we've, been the, we've been the thing that gets in the way of access to and justice. And we're expensive and, and we're generally productive of delay. Exactly. Um, so there's, there, there are issues here to be solved. Yeah. Jacob, I've got a final question for you, that's, and thank you for being so gracious with your time, that's looking forward um, to risks that are emerging in our market and where litigation might, might develop. And I know you, you can't speak with perfect crystal ball clarity, but I'd be interested in your uh, insight here and our audience would as well, I'm sure. Um, obviously, some obvious things, we're moving into a low carbon environment and, and corporate Australia is adjusting to that, making lots of disclosures about that and they've got emission targets and there's that whole environmental space and climate change space. We've got headlines at the moment about the, the various issues associated with cybersecurity and data breach. We've got regulators ever more focused on corporate disclosure, high levels of shareholder activism in our market. And I guess as well, there less, it's less likely now that we can really think of any risk as being non-financial. In that environment, where do you see, to the extent you can, the next phase of litigation by subject matter or the next trend in the space of major corporate litigation in Australia? Yeah. I mean, it's very topical at the moment, but... Uh... Uh, I think there's a serious issue about what companies are doing with people's personal information. Uh, and um, I think that's something we need to have a kind of think about uh, in terms of how do we get the settings right there. Obviously, uh, so much of the information economy relies on people's personal information being exchanged on the internet and there's a massive amount of consumer convenience in all of that. Um, but uh, the vulnerability to the misuse of that information, either the commercial exploitation of it in, in a way that is adverse to the interests of the, the person who gave the information, or the breach by hackers who sell that information and cause you all sorts of grief with identity fraud, uh, are emerging as very, very serious social problems. Um, so I think there needs to be a solution to that. We're doing our bit to try and drive a solution. So I think that's a really very obvious consumer issue. I think, um, I think uh, climate change 
is an interesting issue from a class actions perspective uh, because I, th I think the real issue in climate change is the, w the economy is going to change very, very quickly, I think. Um, and uh, if you listen to the Prime Minister, he's very keen to make that happen. Um, and in any change, there will be um, there will be bad actors who are hiding in the who are trying to exploit it, uh, and we'll hopefully be a part of finding them and and compensating people for that. There might also be not bad actors, but pe but companies who are not taking the steps they ought to be taking to make sure they've got a really clear view of their journey through that change. Uh, and uh, I think we've got an important part to play in reminding companies that there are consequences, financial consequences, for not taking those steps uh, and, um, and protecting their investors uh, and consumers um, by, by being forward thinking about that. So, I, I, you know, broadly speaking, I think there's a lot that class actions do in, in kind of helping enforce great standards of corporate governance. Um, and not just governance in the sort of broad term, but real kind of operational governance to make sure that you are, uh, are looking after the interests of your investors and consumers and workers. Um, and, and in a period of change, uh, that's, there's, there's a lot of challenges for companies to, to get themselves fit for that change. Right. They're, they're, they've got costs that, that may not always be completely predictable about what they'll have to do to be in this new environment and they've got disclosures to make about that. I mean, that's the lifeblood of the shareholder class action space. But I suppose as well, do you think Australia, the, the, the common law may develop or, or possibly some legislative change to, to recognise causes of action for the more direct consequences of climate change, the physical, the environmental damage? Possibly. I think we'll have to see. I mean, it, 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 under our system of law, it's very, very hard to figure out how you sheet blame home for this very systemic problem to any individual actors. Uh, and, and, and so it would take legislative change to, to, I think, create kind of actionable causes of action. Now, that's probably a conversation we'll be having over the next couple of decades. Um, but, but even without that change, I think, still think there's a lot there. I think a third issue which troubles me a lot is the, what sometimes gets called the gig economy that maybe get called precarious work or whatever you want to call it. The problem of uh, the problem is that in Australia in particular, we have embedded a lot of social protections in the employment relationship. So we have workplace safety laws, we have superannuation, um, and um, we have uh, standard of living based wages set through the Fair Work on Fair Work Commission. Um, so, so this has been the sort of Australian compact for a hundred years, is that the employment relationship is sacred and we're going to attach a bunch of security to that. The more people are able to figure out ways to get around the employment relationship, because the internet provides channels for people to communicate and distribute a workforce without the necessity that they have any other relationship with the employer or could easily be identified as an employee. Um, is, I think, a big, big problem. And the more people are finding themselves effectively doing work outside of that relationship, the more they're outside of the entire Australian compact. Um, and I worry about that. I think that's going to need legislative reform. Um, I know the Minister is, uh, the Minister for Industrial Relations and Workplace Relations is very interested in, in coming up with creative solutions to that problem. Um, but that, that seems to me a very big challenge. 
and um, I want Maurice Blackburn to be uh, playing a role in, in making sure that uh, there's no abuse going on uh, and, um, and that we're extending the social compact as broad as possible so that you can't kind of find a hole in the bucket. I follow, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's one that's probably not getting the discussion it may deserve at the moment, to, yeah. to be frank. But it's, it's, I mean, it's, small, it's a small amount leaking out of the bucket at the moment. Um, but I don't see structurally why that hole can't flood everyone out, right? Like that, that people can't figure out ways to redefine almost any relationship as an independent contractor. Uh, and we, we, need to, we need to either completely reimagine the Australian social compact or we need to fix the employment relationship. I suspect we need to do a bit of both. Yeah. Those are big tasks, so that that's a, they might be longer-term projects. We don't have the long-term, I think. Um, I think we've got a lot of people already working in precarious environments. Yeah. Do, do you also think there are some emerging areas, that, this is a pivot again, but as our regulatory environment catches up with new types of assets like crypto assets and you know there'll be no doubt there'll be new kinds of exposure we haven't yet even thought of in that form of completely technology. completely yeah. i'm i'm very crypto skeptical oh, yeah. I, you know i think yeah. <laughs> i think we're uh, paying you in crypto for this <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if you knew that <laughs> um the um uh i'm I, i'm very I, look i think you're going to need to regulate the hell out of crypto and i think once it's regulated it's not going to be as attractive as it seems but the idea that we can have this co completely separate monetary uh system going on uh, unwinds everything we've built sort of peace and prosperity on over the last 70 years um so crypto is either a massive threat more likely government's going to end up being a massive threat to crypto is my guess. I, I, I follow. <laughs> anyway, I don't know. That's probably, that's probably too high a, a philosophical level for this conversation. No, no, it's a good one. I'm, I'm getting rid of my crypto as I speak. <laughs> uh, well, Jacob, it's not every day we get an insight from a CEO of a major law firm that's, that's got such a diversified portfolio as yours. And so I'm sure the audience will, as I have, really benefit from those insights. So I wanted to thank you for joining the episode and, and again, for being so gracious. With no, your great. Time. It, was, it was great to have a conversation that was so broad ranging and so quick, really. <laughs> it's a long trip for a <laughs> short conversation, but we've, we've valued it greatly. So it's thank you very much. You're welcome. Thanks. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and visit our website, herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.